Hello and welcome to the Let's Talk Azure podcast with your hosts, Sam Foote and Alan Armstrong. If you're new here, we're a pair of Azure and Microsoft 365-focused IT security professionals. It's episode 24 of season four. Alan and I had a recent discussion on Azure container apps, a serverless container service provided by Microsoft Azure, designed to simplify the deployment and scaling of containerized applications using Kubernetes. Here are a few things that we covered. What are containers and why do organizations use them? Uh, what is Azure Container Apps and how uh, does it compare to other services in Azure? What types of app can, apps can be deployed and hosted? And what are the SKUs and how much does it cost? We've noticed that a large number of you aren't subscribed. If you do enjoy our podcast, please do consider subscribing. It would mean a lot to us for you to show your support to the show. It's a really great episode, so let's dive in. Hey, Alan, how are you doing this week? Hey, Sam, not doing too bad. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Are you back in our time zone yet? How was your jet lag from Ignite last week? Uh, I don't think it's been that bad. Um, a little bit. I do seem to flag by the evenings. Um, but yeah, I think I'm okay. Um, journey back was great. Um, well, as, as best it could be, I guess, from the, you know, it's quite a long journey, isn't it? So, um, but yeah, back in, back to work and cracking on with the week. So how about your week? It's been busy. Uh, yeah, I think it's just mostly been uh, getting my head around a lot of the announcements at Ignite, to be totally honest with you, from a product perspective. Um, I would say there's been a lot of announcements across the board. Is is that sort of what you think? There's been an absolute ton of new stuff, you know, especially in our area as well. Yeah, it's definitely a lot to um, that's coming out now, yeah, and in uh, customers and the community are asking, you know, what does this mean? So, yeah, it's definitely a lot out there. Yeah, no, 100%. Cool. Okay, so shall we crack on with this this episode about Azure containers? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, Sam. So, so what are containers? Yeah, let's 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 begin with I suppose the basics on containers really because this is our first probably our first proper episode where we're actually focusing on containerized applications. Um okay, so containers, um if you imagine um traditionally you would have a server, uh that then got um uh, optimized and brought into virtualization, so virtual machines. Um you may use that um in your organizations. Virtual machines give you well, kind of exactly what they say on the tin, really, a virtual literal machine um so a hypervisor is used to effectively mimic all of the um, hardware components of a system um, in a virtualized and software uh, way containers are a a subset it's, it's i suppose it's quite hard for me to explain the comparisons it's it's in effect a a, a more sandboxed environment than a virtual machine. Imagine um, just a just a sandboxed um, smaller environment that you may just run um, your singular application or workload in. Um, so usually these are um, um, it's still uses a still uses a hypervisor, but you've effective, effectively got a sandbox jailed environment um, in which to run run your application um containers 
weirdly, they do still use operating systems. So that the base image um, for a container may be Debian, um, Ubuntu, Alpine, X, Y, and Z. Other other operating systems um, that you would actually use in virtual machines. Um, but, but effectively, um, containerization systems um, effectively segment those applications at a, I'm going to say at a higher level. Um, so so you, you may have a single machine. It could be a virtualized machine as well that runs a containerization system such as Docker, as an example. And then within Docker, you would run a set of um, uh, containerized um, applications um, inside of Docker. Um, and uh, Docker applications, you know, typically a lot of Dockerized applications are web applications, as an example. But there's many, many different um, types of applications that can be running containers different application lifestyles that can be supported uh life cycles not styles sorry that can be supported um and containerization allows you to effectively um chop up a machine even further into smaller chunks um and with when we talk about containerizations i think we've got to talk about service orientated to architectures and microservices architectures because this is where a lot of containerization has come from um and what i mean by that is is you know traditionally you may have had a monolithic application that you would run and lots of people still run monolithic applications nothing inherently wrong uh, with monolithic applications um but what we have seen is we have seen the rise in popularity of, say, a microservices or a service-orientated architecture, where software has become so large that um, segmenting it up into its component pieces makes a lot of sense. And then you orchestrate those pieces together. So whereas an organization traditionally may have been hosting one, two, or a handful of applications, if you are going down a um, if you are going down a microservices architecture, you could have hundreds of literal microservices, aka small applications, that you've got to orchestrate and manage. You couldn't have a virtual machine for every single application because, you know, the the management overhead of that would be nuts, um, basically. So containerizing uh, applications makes a lot of sense. Um, you've got another level of segmentation and protection there um, so that you can run workloads side by side. That's also great if you're running, you know, a tenanted system, a tenanted application, you know, where multiple of your end users are sharing the same resources. Um, it gives you another level of abstraction there. Um, so, yeah, container containers are... Uh, immensely popular, shall we say. Um, many, many different software and workloads that can be supported. You could create your own custom containers. Um, and, and containers themselves um, don't store, traditionally don't store any of their, they don't have any data storage within them. Uh, you use uh, volumes or bind mounts um, to, to mount volumes inside of them and, and, and folder structures. So um, containers are supposed to be 
um, able to be destroyed at any time, moved, um, uh, upgraded, X, Y, and Z. So the the applicate the, the life cycle of a container is very different to a traditional web application and hosting platform. I'm not really going to go into it in too much detail because one, because I'm going to butcher the explanation, um, and two, um, if you're looking at Azure Container Apps, you're probably already on that journey um, anyway. Cool. Um, yeah, so you you kind of saying that you know using microservices as well, um, like you said, you might have you you wouldn't want to manage multiple virtual machines because um, it might be like you said hundreds of hundreds of microservices. Um, and I guess that's kind of also a um, cost saving as well because you can run as much as you can on the same hosts without them. Um, well without them bleeding into each other kind of thing. You know, they're, they're like you said, they're all sandboxed to, you know, away, so they can't communicate unless you allow them to from a networking perspective. Yeah, yeah consistency is really important as well um, because the developers of software usually define the requirements of their containers so they get consistency. So even if um, the infrastructure team is running a different operating system to what you use, um, you can define all of your requirements in in your containers. Um, you get flexibility of being able to um, um, sort of they're so flexible that you can sort of wrap any type of um, well, the vast majority of applications um, inside of a container. Um, and you also get like massive efficiencies basically because containers. Uh, you can provision so many containers on a single host um, and you use these management tools to make that a lot more simple for you, but you can take micro chunks of CPU and uh, CPU resources and memory because containers are so lightweight. So if you have, you know, a lot of business applications are just effective batch jobs that run and create read and update databases. There's, there's sometimes not a lot of processing power that's required there. Um, so you can really fine tune your resources um, and split up your V cores even further than you can in a virtualized environment. Cool. And you can also have different um, dependencies, packages, can't you, in each container so that if you've, you haven't got that worry of, I need this you know, version 10 of this package and you know, this other application needs version 9, they kind of, yeah. because they're so, they're yeah. so containerized. Yeah, so uh, multiple containers on the same machine um, don't share any resources between each other. Um, any packages are, I suppose, baked into those containers is probably fair to say. When you build a container, um, like if you're using Docker, you have a Docker file, and that's effectively the the um, the commands it goes through to build that machine, and you can define your dependencies there, basically. Cool. Okay, so container apps and you know what are they um and how does it compare to other you know um, options that are in azure okay so we've talked about some very simple examples of singular containers as an example we have sort of jumped into microservices but what happens time and time again with applications is that it's all well and good building them in your building them in your own environment, running them on your local dev box. But when you get to actually running them in a production environment, 
that's a very different conversation. There are management tools. Um, a big con containerization um, system is Kubernetes, as an example. Um, we're not going to we're not really going to touch on Kubernetes because it is a podcast in itself. Um, that's not a criticism of it. That just is a um, it's a reflection of the sophistication of that tooling, right? Um, so you, you you're a developer. You you build your application, you define your Docker file, you get all your dependencies ready to go. Then you've got to somehow host that that image, that container somewhere. So what you could do is you could fire up a virtual machine inside of Azure, um, install Docker on it, um, push uh, push or build your container image um, on that machine, um, and then start running it. You could give it a public IP address fire traffic to it and you could manage it end-to-end -end fully yourself what azure container apps is going to do is it's going to take your it's a managed service from azure which is actually backed by kubernetes but it's going to abstract away a lot of that complexity for you you are effectively going to give it your container you're going to tell it where you want it to run what you want it to run on, the resources that it's going to consume, what from a networking perspective can talk to it and what it does, define its life cycle, and then Microsoft is going to run that for you. So um, we've talked previously about app service. Now, a slightly confusing thing about app services, you can run Docker containers there, but we'll pause that, you know, that thought process for a moment. But what app service is for applications, a platform as a service, um, Azure Container Apps is that same platform as a service, but for containers instead of the, the, the source code um, directly. So um, you'll your build, your, your build your container image. You'd probably push it to a private repository. Um, you could use a, a repository um, inside of Azure to do that because there's a repository service um, inside of Azure. Um, and then you'd effectively say, okay, I would like to run this container in this way based on this image um, that's that's come down. Um, I think the big thing for me is it's going to do your networking for you. Um, it's going to give you um, HTTPS and um, your TCP ingress without having to manage infrastructure. I think that's really important because getting your application terminated to the internet correctly is a job in itself, um, basically. Um, you can also, it will, it will handle um, specialized hardware. So you can, you can run basically, I'm not sure what the actual name of it is, either dedicated or isolated hardware. We'll come to that in the pricing. Um, but if you need access to GPUs for your workloads, as an example, or you want to run on specific hardware, um, then you can do that. One of the big functions of it is, is it's going to give you container revisions and application lifecycle management, right? Because one of the big challenges is, okay, I've pushed a new version of my application out. What if there's a regression or a bug in that that I haven't spotted in my QA process? 
that obviously never happens, right? Because developers test everything before they push them out. But it will happen at some time. So you want to be able to stage releases. Maybe you load balance a new version, um, you know, and you you, you load balance 50% you know, from a previous version to a new version, or you slowly roll out, but you want a way to be able to revert back. And it's going to basically um, give you that. Um, and split traffic for A-B testing is, it doesn't sound like a hugely complicated endeavor, but if you're running that yourself, that is going to take um, time there. Um, you can also pull containers from any reg registry. So any um, public or private, you can pull from Docker Hub if you just want to run, you know, a, a container that's already out there and publicly available. Or you can use a private one, such as using Azure Container Registry. Um, if you want to bind it to an existing VNet, um, you can also do that as well when you're defining your environment uh, for your containers to run in. Um, what it's also going to do is it's going to give you um it's going to give you access to monitoring and logging and observability that is challenging for any application stack and technology so microsoft is going to give you tooling in and around that that is going to help you um accelerate binding into that summer stuff some of that stuff also i think i want to call out now cuz i'm I'm probably not going to have a separate section on security, but their managed identities are also supported in injection into containers. Now, getting identity flowing through into containers is a challenge, you know, because they are a, an isolated and sandboxed environment, if you will. So passing, you know, identities and authentication through there um, can be a challenge to do that um, securely. Cool. Um, it it kind of sounds like you know this is this is great if you if you you are building containers because there's probably still a lot that you have to still configure. But you know you in effect you just have to provide the the location of your container, get it uploaded, make sure your networking's correct and things like that, um, and then you're kind of kind of sorted. It kind of feels like anyway. You know it's. It's there. It's done. You can start testing. You know, there's a uh, a low barrier to entry kind of thing of getting your app up and running, uh, at least testing it and seeing if it works, kind of thing before you go into your yeah. Because into your... ironically, right, containerizing an app is very simple from a developer user experience perspective. Right, you've got your nice safe space that you know that your app will operate in. If I run a container using Docker on my Mac laptop and then I push it onto a Linux, like an Ubuntu server that's running Docker, I have really, really, really high confidence that it will just work because my container, the environment inside of my container is exactly the same. Um, but I, the way that I kind of see it is, is that then containers add a management overhead to you because you're not just dumping your code onto a box, putting a web server on it. Let's say you've got a web app as an example. You're not just configuring the box and throwing your application on it. You've then got to understand the life cycle of 
that that container and manage it. I'm not saying that's overly complex, especially with the technologies that these type of individuals have to deal with. I'm not really saying it's arduous or anything like that. It's just another thing that you need to think about on top of IaaS, right? Because if you went IaaS and you just um, put maybe put Windows Server on it and ran IIS as an example, right? Does IIS even still exist, Alan? I don't even know because I haven't even used any of that uh, for a long, long time, right? I'll use words that I know, right? But you can put a web server on, you drop your app into it, and it will start running, won't it? You have to make sure that box is configured, hardened, and everything you want to do with it. But then you've got you've still got the box, and then you've got, let's say, Docker on top of it that you've got to maintain. Mm. Uh, Microsoft is going to take that next level. So you get all of the benefit of the great developer experience. And it, once again, the cloud platform goes, oh, just give me your container and I'll run it for you. Right? Yeah. And I guess as well, you, you know, if you if you were hosting it yourself, like you said, it's not it's not impossible to do, but you've then got to think about resilience and all that sort of stuff you know i have two of you know two machines running in different regions things like that maybe or even just in the same you know, region let alone if you need an application that needs to scale for you i'm guessing you know the the app container service kind of well at least from a resilience perspective you know if if the host it's on for any reason goes down it's literally up on another one somewhere else that you don't even have to worry about yeah exactly and I think it's probably worth calling out is one of the sort of disadvantages of Azure App Service. I know we're not talking about app service in this, you know, thing, but we we do need to compare the other options in Azure because there are some things you need to think about. But app service, one of the complexities with it is it's not the same environment as your local environment. You know, so there is a process of validating that it will run in app service. But if you give your container to Azure container apps, it will just run. You know, the caveat that I need to add to that is you can actually run containers on Azure App Service. So that makes it a little bit more complex. Should we talk about the other options in Azure? That's probably a good segue into into talking about them. Yeah, let's do that. Um, okay, so Azure Container Apps is going to give you a lot of help and support, take a lot of your workload off in terms of binding up a, a lot of these things. Um, Azure App Service, as we've talked about, um, that can run... Um, uh, containers, uh, Docker, Docker images, uh, Docker containers. Sorry, but that's really for long-running applications. Okay, Azure Container Apps has the ability to um, do uh, event-driven jobs as well. So you can set up a schedule to run a container on a particular job cycle if you want to. Right. So you don't have to leave a you don't have to leave a a Docker machine running, a Docker container running constantly. Um, and that's really what app services is all around, really. Um, there is Azure Container Instances as well. Um, but that is really around uh, pods of Hyper-V isolated containers. Um, so it, it's better to think about that at a lower level than um, than container apps. Um, you're not going to get things like scaling, load balancing, certificate termination, all of those niceties um, at that. But if you do need a lower level um, experience, um, that 
that that could be a good option for you. Um, Azure Kubernetes service. So as I've mentioned before, Kubernetes is a very mature and sophisticated platform that you know people dedicate their whole professional careers to. Um, Azure Kubernetes service does wrap up a lot of the simplicity, a lot of the complexity, sorry, and layer on simplicity for you. They'll effectively run the control side of Kubernetes for you. But you do still need to interact in and manage it in a very similar way that you would for running your own Kubernetes cluster. They're just giving you a lot of that out of the box, basically. So if you do need to actually um, build a virtualization platform um, and an orchestration platform, that might also be a better option um, for you because container apps is really around like singular containers and you know and, and managing them uh, basically. Maybe scaling those containers, but you know not not at that scale is probably worth um, thing talking about. Um, we'll just talk about Azure Functions because Azure Functions is effectively a serverless environment that allows you to execute code. And really, you can do that with container apps as well. Um, but really, what you're talking about with Azure Functions there is, is kind of like app service. You're giving Microsoft your code. You're doing a build for them, and they're running that um, build for you. And it's not containerized. It it is containerized because app service and func Azure Functions containerizes everything as you send it up. They're just building that container for you um, on on the fly. There, there's two other options that I have never used, so I'm just going to call them out because I've got no experience. Um, Azure Spring um, apps uh, for Spring developers. I'm sorry, but I have absolutely no <laughs> clue. Uh, what that what that is whatsoever, um, and Azure Red Hat OpenShift. Um, again, um, OpenShift is is not an area that I've I've looked at at all. So, even if you are looking to containerize your apps and deploy and orchestrate them in Azure, you do have a few options that you do need to think about what is best for your use case. But the reason why I picked container apps to talk about is I think it's probably, if you do want to containerize your apps, it's probably the easiest one to get started with, you know, and that's that's up for debate. And, you know, that's just my, my gut. So it's a really friendly and welcoming start to that if, you, if, you're, if you're moving into that area and you want some assistance with that journey. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it does. It does sound like the Azure app containers, even for a uh, someone starting off, at least in in either development or you know they understand the containers and then maybe like you said they're reusing another container to then they want to host that service in in Azure. It kind of does feel like that's the uh, easiest, simplest way to start off with, at least until you know you understand what other um, advanced um, advances you need to do in you know in that space that you maybe then have to decide on another another azure service um to help you out with that do um, you know what i love about it is it's just helping you orchestrate those containers 
there is very little vendor lock-in with it, right? Mm. If you want to take your containers elsewhere, you are free to do so, right? Because they're giving you, yeah, they're giving you the management and orchestration platform, but there is no, in theory, there is no change to your containers whatsoever. So if, yeah, you, it's true. If, you're, if you're currently on GCP and you've got your own private registry, you know, there, you just got to get your container to, you've just got to get your image to a place that this thing can talk to it, right? Um, and worst case, that's a rebuild of your container into container registry, you know, as your container registry. But if you're doing that somewhere else, that's not going to be, you know, out of the question. Um, and yeah, if you, if you, if you don't like the service or you want to run on multiple clouds at the same time and load balance between them, because in theory you could have an external load balancer pointing at these, you know, these endpoints, right? You don't have to do the load balancing in Azure if you don't want to. So it's really flexible from, from that perspective. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what sort of types of applications can you, can be hosted then within these containers? Yeah, so um, like I mentioned, long-running applications can run. Um, they can just um, sort of uh, stay up, be replicated, scaled, kept warm, um, ready to go. Um, there is um, what's called, uh, the term is um, you effectively have a, um, you effectively have an environment which has a number of containers with it in it. Um, and then you have revisions of those containers um, inside your application, and that's how you can basically decide what your your um, active revisions are versus your inactive revisions, um, basically um, as you go through. Um, but just talking about um, applications, so live, uh, so long running um, live applications are are supportive. You'll have your entry points, and you'll have your your startup mechanisms uh, predefined in your containers. Um, there's also the ability to run jobs. Um, and jobs, you can effectively set up a, um, um, you can have different ones. You can have a manual job that's just triggered on demand. You can have a scheduled job. So you specify like a cron schedule, basically. Um, and then you can have event-driven jobs as well. So um, they can be triggered via like a message arriving in a message queue as an example. And effectively what that job does is it just runs an image. Um, but that image runs, you know, you pass the data into it or the image wakes up, finds its job that it's got to do, and then it, it does its work and then shuts down um, basically um, after that. And that's a really powerful thing because, you know, um, event-driven systems are really popular now. You know, the, the way that you orchestrate you know, flows of logic running through a larger organization, having an event-driven system can can simplify a lot of the 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 job flows, basically, if you've got especially if you've got long running tasks and lots of interconnected um pieces. So um yeah, it's really good that it's supported here. Um if you are into microservices, um, um, um it allows you to also run, there's a native um, Dapper integration. And what Dapper in integration, what Dapper does is it effectively runs a, it's the best way of explaining it. 
it effectively runs a um, a separate application alongside your containers um, with like a native messaging and queuing system that you can use to communicate and orchestrate between your um, containers. Um, Dapper is um, open source. Um, so it's great to see that there's a, again, a non-vendor lock, a non-vendor locked in inbuilt mechanism to do messaging and queuing inside of this system. That's a lot of words, right? Um, but bringing up your own queuing system, you know, uh, your own messaging framework, again, is a role and responsibility in itself. Um, so in theory, you can you could um, align to Dapper and you, that's just supported out of the box um, with container apps. So if you already use it, big win. Um, and if you're looking to something something to help, then yeah, you've got it there, ready to go. Wow, okay. So there's definitely a lot of different scenarios there um, rather than just um, just hosting your your, uh, your code and running it like a web service. Yeah. yeah. So that's great. Um. Okay, so I think we kind of talked about this a little bit, but um, yeah, how do we get the apps deployed? Um, I think you said about you know putting them into um, you know um, repositories, things like that. Yeah, so um, yeah, let's talk about deployment options because that's always really, I think that's really important personally because you know getting your code from you know text editor to cloud. And, you know, improving the efficiency of that is really important for organizations, right? They don't want a hugely bureaucratic, you know, system um, that they need to sort of go go through. Um, so you can, um, you can deploy an application from your code editor. Um, so you can do it inside of Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code um, directly. I haven't done that. My assumption is, is you do the build and you push the container image on the fly to there, but I'm not 100% sure there. You can define um, your deployment um, in Azure portal. So like if you're if you're bringing like a public image down, um, let's say you wanted to run like, because you could run a database here, right? You know, you could run an actual database in container apps, right? Because you could bring down, let's say you did, MySQL, as an example, um, you could bring down the MySQL and just run it, um, you know, alongside. Um, also, you can uh, drive deployment um, from GitHub Actions and Azure Pipelines. Um, I believe there's um, extensions and I think they're both called extensions or both. It might be extensions and plugins. I'm, I can't remember, 100% remember on the action side, um, but you can effectively hook into these um, the these here as well um there is also um infrastructure as code um so you, native i'm not sure about terraform to be totally honest with you because i haven't looked at it um but azure cli and the newer azure developer cli um both have um support basically for um uh, for it so yeah lots of ways to get your but what's interesting here is, and I know I keep coming back to app service, but it's a good thing to compare against, especially if you're coming from that world. Your deployment is a lot more simplistic in this model because you're not pushing, pushing a package of your code. You have already built the container. 
you have done all of the QA to make sure you're happy with that container, you are literally pushing the image of that container to this host environment, right? So all it is is getting a big blob of data ready for them and some configuration to boot the thing up, right? Um, it's not sending all your code and your configuration. You do do some configuration with environment variables, granted, um, but you don't go to the same level as you do with with app service. No, cool. Okay, so there's definitely a couple of ways to get the you know get your apps up there. Um, okay, so let's talk about managing and monitoring. So you know how do we? You kind of talked about it um, being available, but how do you you know monitor, manage you know, your applications in in the containers? Yeah, so there's a lot of tooling in and around um, that Microsoft are, are basically binding in in for you. Uh, you've got log streaming. Um, the ability, kind of like you can in app service, actually, to see a, see a live output of the logs coming out of a system. You can connect to a container console, so you can actually connect in um, to your container and debug through, because that's, that's an important thing with containers. You want to be able to actually get into them um, to debug them and work out what's um, going on there. A lot of the platform metrics you're going to get through as your monitor um, and, and um, log analytics um, as well there. So because that ecosystem is in place, you're going to get a lot of the logging analytics and alerting um, coming through there um, as well. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, those things that I've talked about, you're going to use them in very different ways dependent on the phase of your application deployment. So if you're in development and test, you might be looking at, you know, logging and streaming in the container console. But then when you're deploying and actually running it, trying to do maintenance on it, observing it in production um, you might be using things like azure monitor um, and log analytics uh, basically at that point cool okay so it's kind of the same like you said similar monitoring to what you might be used to in azure anyway um, from insights maybe to you know like you said the azure monitor and etc so that's good because it's not something else it's not something um, specific to this this service it's kind of the norm across Azure kind of thing. Exactly. So yeah. you've yeah, done it definitely. done it some way, you know kind of what you're looking at, yeah. apart from yeah. the you know, stats being different. Um, cool. Okay. So what sort of SKUs are there? And you know, our favorite question of how's it priced? Okay. I'm I'm reading from the pricing page because it's a complicated <laughs> one. I admit that right now. Okay. So the pricing is done in virtual core seconds and gigabyte seconds for RAM and requests. So you get your first 180,000 virtual CPU seconds per month for free. You get your first 360,000 gigabyte seconds per month for free. and you get 2 million requests each month for free. As your base, that's what you get. That that seems powerful in itself, isn't it? You, you start start out and try and work out your your deployment of your application, your container, and you can almost do it for, well, it sounds like you can do it for free before you go sort of production. It kind of feels like that. Exactly. Yeah, that is... Again, like a lot of these platform as a service, managed services, 
you are getting a free tier so that you can validate your code in a dev pre-prod environment, 100%. Okay. Now, when you go above this, you, you can, there's basically two modes. There's active usage and idle usage. Okay. So, if your, your, your application is deemed to be an active mode, if it's above 0.01 CPU cores, or when the data is above 1,000 bytes a second. So when I'm talking about 0.01 cores, I think you can see the, glan the granularity that is able to be gleaned by chopping up virtual cores, right? Because in the world of microservices and containerization, you can literally chop up a single virtual core into hundredths of a core of resource and sort of scheduling um, down to there. So the numbers are just simply ridiculous. And I, I, I can't really give you a great example, but I'm just going to tell you that one virtual CPU second is $0.0000034 per second. And memory is 0 0.00004 dollars per second. Now, what's even more interesting is, and then the idols are basically, so that's active usage, right? So that, that first number I gave you was basically 34 per second, right, for vCPU. I'm not even going to talk about the zeros in front of it, right? We'll just talk about 34 per second. The memory is four per second. But if it's idle and not doing anything, then it's four per second on each side, basically. Right? If you're not really doing anything, you're you're saving even even more, basically. Right? But what is slightly more insane is you can buy a one-year and a three-year savings plan to go on top of that. I'm not even going to talk about the numbers, but they are cheaper, basically. It's 15% savings for one year and 17% savings for three years as well. Now, that is for container apps that are running in like what we'll call the consumption plan, the shared environment, as an example. Okay. So what you can also do is you can run in a dedicated plan. This is where I was talking a while ago about isolated. It's called dedicated, uh, effectively. What that does is it gives you single tenancy guarantee and access to specialized hardware and actually more predictable pricing, uh, really, as well. Because we talked about these insane numbers, right? Like how many how many virtual CPU core seconds are you going to use in a month, Alan? <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's going to fluctuate with the amount of users that I've got. Um, what you can do with dedicated plan is you can buy basically bigger chunks um, over, uh, over and over again, basically. So what you can basically do um, is um, you can buy in actual vCPU hour, basically instead of second and gigabyte hour, um, basically on this side. 
So a V CPU per hour is nine cents per hour in dedicated, and then memory is zero point zero point six cents per hour, something like that. Really, like nothing. And again, you can get um, you can get one year and three year um, uh, savings plan as well. Um, there is also a plan management. I believe you've got to put on top of it as well, which is um, ten cents per hour as well. So you do have, you do have the, um, you do have the ability to, you know, go completely single tenancy and dedicated um, if you wish. So, yeah. Yeah. Does does that mean then what you pay for is basically your limit? So that you know, it's it's kind of like if you bought a. If we talk about app service. You bought a, a SKU that had an X CPU, etc. Correct. That's basically yes. once you hit that, you've that's your max kind of thing. Yeah, but it is pay as you go though, so you can scale. Yeah, you're just buying it in bigger units, I believe. Basically, I've right, personally okay, so not you... used the dedicated plan before. No. That's not that's not a a bit that I've been in. Um, but what I can tell you is what is very nice about the consumption plan. And the last time I used it, you could do C, you could set your minimum. I think it was your minimum RAM to like for your container. I want to say it was like 192 meg or maybe it was 128, something ridiculous or 96 meg or something like that. A lot of containers like require like 50 meg of RAM to boot or something like that, you can really bring it down. And I think if I remember rightly, the minimum that you could put a V core onto was 0.25 of a V core, basically. Um, and it was like to run a, I don't know, I might butcher the numbers, but like an app that I was running and it was costing me like $2 a month, basically, that stayed up all the time. So if you had a job that ran like once a day, I think I think you'd struggle to spend the hundred eighty thousand vCPU seconds, basically. Yeah. Okay. So your your the size of the the container is what you define when you build it, kind of thing. What resource you want to give it, and then you don't pay for all of that. You only pay for the the seconds, the minutes, the and etc of the um ram and um cpu then that it uses within that so you can kind of limit how much you use based on how, what container size you give i guess in some form yeah but what's even more weirder is that if you run your container constantly but it's idle you'll still pay the memory fee i'm yeah. gonna call it four per second right <laughs> but your CPU cost is going to go from 34 per second to 4 per second as well. Mm. So if your app idles overnight, you're not going to pay your active usage. You're going to pay even less overnight because you're literally using less CPU. Have, have you ever heard of that from any sort of Microsoft platform where you can basically have idle versus active v vCore? I haven't seen that. No. It's not very capitalist, is it? Like, it doesn't make <laughs> sense, does it? <laughs> so let's just hope, 
yeah but but i think i think that is based on how people interact and use containers you know containers are designed to be very very efficient in their use of resources yeah and they are usually deployed in environments where there's many of them you know that are orchestrated together so um i think that's why uh, those things are in place yeah yeah it's never really just one on its own sat there it's always no. 10 20 100,000 etc exactly. so yeah yeah cool okay um is there anything else you can think of that we might have you might have missed or any other areas you might want to just quickly talk about no there's loads more that we could talk about with it but we've already been going what 48 minutes now so um i think it's yeah no i think that will give you a good overview if you do have workloads that you think you could containerize and put in here i would definitely encourage you to at least try give the free um tier a go i say free tier it's not free tier is it it's the same tier um but obviously there's always a time element and a bandwidth resource um requirement there so yeah just um yeah um have a look at it it's it's a great bit kit cool um, um so alan um uh, next episode um what are you going to be covering so we not been actively not talking about copilot but which copilot for... are you talking about alan <laughs> well i haven't said that yet but um but sorry i think we've been waiting for a bit more visibility of its usage and things like that before we kind of did an episode on it so i'm gonna do the microsoft copilot so the microsoft 365 copilot the production one next week yeah Uh, we do know a bit more about security copilot and and what its capability is from ignite um but i think i just want to get a bit more information to come out before we do an episode because i want to get that nailed yeah we've been we've been umming and ahhing about when is the right time to start talking about Copilot, right? And I think with all of these technologies, we do like to wait until we can get our hands on it and really understand it, if that makes sense. And that's not us being pessimistic, I don't think. That is just us making sure that we can convey it in the right way, right? And it feels like Microsoft Copilot, now it's GA, is it's the right time to start talking about it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, we'll do an episode on that, on its capability. I'll probably throw in a bit of, um, AI studio. It's kind of related in some form. Um, um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll cover that. Nice. Okay. So did you enjoy this episode? If so, please do consider leaving us a review on Apple or Spotify. This really helps us reach out to more people like yourselves. Um, if you have any specific feedback or suggestions to episodes, um, we, we have a link in our show notes to get in contact with us. Yeah. And if you've made it this far, thanks very much for listening. I'll catch you on the next one. Yep. Thanks all.